0: Romans 14, Romans 14, it's always nice to see him come home, and um, now, I'm going to try to give this sermon the whole sermon, and to do that, I'm not going to tell any funny stories, I'm not going to give any unique anecdotes, I'm just going to read my notes. Now, I know this is, so therefore, um, brace thyself. Now, Romans 14, if you have a Bible like mine, the top of that section of Scripture says, Do not pass judgment on one another. And then halfway through that section of chapter 14, you'll see the words, Do not cause another to stumble. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Now, let's read verse 1, and then a few other verses here, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. For as the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Verse 10, 11, and 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the the one judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us, not, let us not pass judgment upon one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And let us pray together. Father, we take your word in hand at this time and try to, to try to be, you know, to try to let people know what you say about these things. And I pray, Lord, that it would be clear and helpful in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now the local church is, is different from the big from the big church. The local church is a church like this, a visible church of recognized people in a certain vicinity and place for the proclamation of the gospel and the observance of the ordinance of Christ. So the local church is kind of the, fan, the, the small family that Christians live in. And the local church is a, the scene of some spectacular events. The salvation of souls is the most spectacular thing that takes place in a church like this, is that we see people who are unbelievers become believers. Now, I want to say this to you plainly. I'm going to try to catch everybody's eye if I can as I look around the auditorium. I want each one of you to really think about whether or not you have actually put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean that you have grown up in a Christian church or you think you're a Christian. I want to know, and I hate to use this terminology because I think it might be unhelpful, but I'm going to use it anyway. Can you remember a specific moment or a general time in your life when you, in some place, in some spot, put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now for me, it was August twenty second, 1993, at Calvary Baptist Church in Flora, Illinois. Not Florida, Illinois. Flora, Illinois. My dad was preaching the sermon. And during the sermon, I was, con- I was convinced of two things. One is that I was a sinner and two, that I was going to hell. That's what I was convinced of. Now, in that particular tradition of church, you had to wait till the end to do anything about it. So at the end of the service, when my dad gave the altar call, I got out of my seat, which was the front seat on the front pew. I came right up to a little makeshift railing. I got down on my knees and I prayed, and I asked Jesus to save me. I don't remember what I said exactly, but I did, in that moment, put my personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to get saved. You have to do that in a church. You can do it anywhere. You can do it at work, running a machine. You can do it driving a truck, driving a tractor. But is there a time when you put your personal faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I can't. You, have, that's, you, have to, you, you know the answer to that. And if you haven't put your personal faith in Jesus Christ, if you've, if you've never really realized that you need to call upon Christ from a heart of faith, believing that He's the Son of God and that He rose from the dead, if you've never called upon Him to save you, this is a great time to do it. It's not a magical prayer. It's faith. I am now putting my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. That kind of thing takes place in churches all the time. All the time. So this local church is a scene of some spectacular events. In this local church, sometimes you'll see miraculous answers to prayer. In a local church like this, this is is a great thing, you'll see vast sums of money raised (laughs) for the work of God around the world. I have been in churches... Where small churches have raised, you know, relative to their size, fabulous amounts of money to give to foreign missions to send the gospel around the world. I, I've been I've been in in camp meetings and little little fellowship meetings where they would say we need to raise ten thousand dollars, and you look around the room and you're like there ain't there ain't ten thousand bucks within hundred miles of this place. And before their service is over, they go to twelve to fifteen because usually when pastors reach the goal if they go $1 over they say we got to go higher <laughs> so if it's 10,001 we got to go for 12 i've seen vast sums of money raised to support missions around the world and that has and that has had a colossal impact on the world and then in local churches you have marriages births reconciliations, victory over besetting sins. You have all kinds of wonderful things in a local church, but the very same place that can be so wonderful can be a scene of very painful moments. There's an old adage that says this, there is no hurt like church hurt. And sometimes what goes on in a church can be so rotten that people will quit church altogether. Both pastors and members sometimes suffer cruelly within local churches. The stories I know about stuff that's taken place inside churches like ours would curl your hair. But you probably already know lots of those kind of stories yourself. Because this local visible place, which can be so wonderful, can also be so bad. And I've heard the same thing about an institution we all know and love, Marriage. Charles Spurgeon said marriage can be a slice of heaven on earth. True? Every dude whose marriage should say amen real loud. Amen. Heaven on earth. But the same can be true in a marriage too, can't it? Marriage can be something very different sometimes. That doesn't make the institution of marriage bad. And I've heard the same thing about people who have military service. And I look around the room and I people here who have served in the military... I've heard the same thing about military service. I've heard some people talk about military service like it was, it was like being in hell. And then others who said it was the, most, the greatest life-shaping experience of their life. But it doesn't make the institutions bad. Just the, the institutions can have difficulties. Now, the local church can be such a wonderful place and it can also be a bad place for us. And there's some causes for this. One of reason is because in the local church sometimes unsaved people, unchristian people are a part of the local church. And the reason that some of you are so bad at being Christians is because you're not a Christian at all. Then others of you are still just babies in the Lord. Even though you've been in church attendance for decades, you're still a little child in the faith. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. This is a, this is a striking reading. But brothers, it's Paul writing to the church. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So inside a church, just because you've been sitting in that pew for 5,700 years, doesn't mean that your soul is as mature as your backside. You can, you can go to every practice for your team. You can go to every team practice and never get any better. Because when you're at practice for a team, for a sport, what do you got to do while you're there? You got to practice. The four-letter word for practice is work. You got to do the work. And, and it's all those behind-the-scenes work that really make, make for a great player. A kid who never throws, throws the ball to house, never shoots baskets outside of practice, he's never going to be as good as the kid who like Larry Bird when he was 12 years old. Larry Bird. Who, when he was 12 years old, before he went to school, was shooting 500 free throws with nobody to catch the ball and throw it back to him. 500 shots, nobody to get the rebound for him. Shoot one, go get it. Shoot two, go get it. Shoot three, go get it. Shoot four, go get it. Shoot five, go get it. 500 before school. Now that worked out to Larry being one of the greatest of all time. Kobe Bryant, same way. When the team would come for practice at 8 a.m., Kobe had already been in the gym for four hours working on his game. What does he become? One of the greatest. It takes work. Being a Christian is not going to be accomplished sitting in the pew of a Baptist church. It's going, you're becoming a mature Christian is going to take place behind the scenes with you and God's word in your hand and a knee bit in prayer, getting to know God in a personal way and then living out what you've learned. So sometimes the conflicts in a Christian church are sometimes because some people are saved and then the other time is because some people are not as mature as they ought to be. And then those who are mature sometimes they forget that not everybody is as mature as they are and you have a conflict. Now have you ever seen an adult get into an argument with a little kid? And you want to go Don't get down on their level. (laughs) I mean, it's funny how grown people can become children in just a second. You ain't gonna tell me. I'm the grown up. I'm the grown up. (laughs) I'm the. (laughs) So, these kind of things happen in a local church too. Now, Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, talking about the same themes he's talking about here in Romans says that in the church, when these conflicts are taking place, Paul says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed one of another. Biting and devour on each other? Chewing on each other? Chewing on each other about what? Well, in my experience, Christians can get into it over all kinds of stuff. And they gnaw on each other. And so here in this chapter of Romans, the issue... That's dividing this church because Paul's responding to a problem. The issue in this church is one of who is the holiest of us all. Who is more holy than who? And it's about a specific thing. It's about eating meat offered to idols. Now, in the Christian church, when the Christian church first emerges, it's composed mostly of Jews. And Jews, they had a strict dietary code, and they were not allowed to eat any meat that still had the blood in it. Because in the, in the pagan world, they would strangle animals to kill them. In the Jewish culture, they would cut the throat and drain all the blood out of it. And God said in the law, in the biblical law, He said, thou shalt not eat the blood of any living thing, for the life is in the blood. So they're not allowed to eat or drink blood at all. And the Jews kind of decided, so that means zero blood ever, not even the, not even the risk of it. One of Lacey's friends... Uh, uh, told us this week that she had that this kid, he has uh, uh, what's he allergic to? Uh, you're you're uh, parson. Gluten. And, if, and he, said, he said, if he even gets a round flour sometimes in a bakery on his skin. Pff. So the Jews, they responded to blood just like that. We're not getting around this at all. And then when Christianity emerges, all these pagans are becoming believers and coming into the church and they didn't have this dietary code they live by and so they're, eat, they're buying their meat down at the, at the local meat market and not the kosher meat market and this was upsetting the Jews. And so there's a conflict here about who can eat meat, eat this meat offered to idols and who doesn't? One group believed themselves to be more spiritual than the others because they did not eat this meat. And the do noters... They're the ones who seem to care the most about it. Now, the, the church of Christ in the early days was filled with these two groups of people, mostly Jews until about 60 A.D. and then more Gentiles. Now, every church, including those churches then and these churches now, every church is filled with people who hold very different views on Christian liberties and what Christians can do. And not just on Christian liberty or Christian freedom, but also on everything imaginable as well. And most church conflicts, in my experience, are not over things that are actually in the Bible. <laughs> They're over things that people wish were in the Bible. When I went to my church in Oklahoma, one of my very first Sundays there, this lady she came in, and, and she, was, uh, she, was an, she was she was an arm. She was she was she was married to. She wasn't married. Uh, she she was married. Okay, she, got, she got married, not married, then she got married again. But she came from the Army base, and she came every week, and uh, she was wearing blue jeans Sunday morning. And that particular church wearing blue jeans on Sunday morning was anathema. A big no-no. And so after the service, this old cadre came up to me, and he said, Pastor, when are you going to say something to her about them jeans? <laughs> and I said, well, I ain't never going to say anything. Ain't never means I will. <laughs> Double negative. <laughs> so let me rephrase <laughs> for the grammar Nazis in the room. So, I will never speak to her about this. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and he is like, well, oh, brother, so-and-so always said that that was wrong. And I said, I said, That's fine for brother so-and-so. I said, but it ain't in the Bible. Not in the Bible. So I'm not going to talk about things that are not in the Bible. Now, but he was certain that it had to be in the Bible because brother so-and-so had said it so assiduously. So churches have different views about different stuff. Everybody in the church has different views. And most of these conflicts are not over things the Bible actually says. I would love to have a, a theological conflict in a church. All the conflicts I've faced in churches are about personality and preferences. The oil and water people don't mix. And so the oil, pe- the oil people want the water people to get oily. And the water people want the oily people to go through a separation machine and separate the oil and the water. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. Or personal opinions about stuff. Now, I am a Baptist preacher. I've been that way my whole life. Well, not my whole life, but most of it. And I got opinions about everything. And sometimes I catch myself up here at the church just yakking to people about my opinions. Now, my opinions are special. (laughs) They're not like everybody else's opinions. But you know what? We laugh at that, but it's kind of true. Because as the pastor, people tend to take what I say with a little more weight. Now, inside this building, out there in the community, they don't give a rip what I say. But in here, my influence is a little bit bigger. You have to to pay attention to that. Now, there are some things within the Christian church we do need to get worked up over. But there's a lot of stuff that we need to just learn to be quiet about because we all have opinions. And Paul says in 14.1, Do not quarrel over opinions. But Romans 14 is about something the Bible actually says. It's about this eating of meat. But that's part of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant rule, those dietary laws have been passed away, and we're we're in the New Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant, so you guys know, the law breaks into three, three segments in the Old Testament. There is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Moral law... Ceremonial law and civil law. And, and Christians, by and large, we only observe the moral law. The ceremonial law of Israel we disregard as being part of the Old Covenant. And the civil law or the civil consequences of law we also set aside because those too are part of a theocratic government. And my friends, I just want you to remember this, is that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Our ambition here is not to set up a kingdom on earth, a theocratic kingdom. I'm not trying to get an all-Baptist Senate or an all-Baptist Congress or an all-Baptist White House. It's not what we're aiming for. Because if you had that, what you'd have is a split. <laughs> Did you ever hear about the, the man on a desert island? They went to the desert island and found this one guy on a desert island, and he had three houses built. Three little buildings. And, they, and, they got, and the people who found him said, man, what's these three houses? He said, well, the first house is my, where I live. He said, oh. I said, okay. And what's the second house? He said, that's where I worship. And he said, what's the second house? He said, well, that's where we had a split. You're going to have some difficulties there. Now, the Christian church has observed this division of laws for a long time because of the new covenant. And we use the moral laws as found in the second half of the Ten Commandments. We say, we say that states and people should live by those laws, the, the second table. Now, early controversies in the church, such as in Romans here, is about eating meat offered to idols. And then the second thing they fought about fairly frequently was about circumcision. Should circumcision be a part of the church? I gave three sermons on circumcision when I started Romans. And uh, don't you guys miss those three sermons? I actually talked to a guy who was who was who he was here. At the, uh, what, what's Jenny's husband's name? Kendall. <laughs> and Kendall, he said, what? he he said, why are you doing that? <laughs> so, but it had it had a big a big part of the early church because that was to be a Jew required circumcision, and Christianity comes in which took some things from Judaism, and it looked like circumcision should be a part of Christianity, but it wasn't to be, and these are scenes of early church conflicts. And as time goes on, the church becomes more and more Gentile than it does Jewish. But that, that changes about 60 AD. Now, gospel preachers who went around preaching the gospel in various cities and communities, intuitively, these gospel-preaching missionaries or traveling preachers They did not go to these cities like Rome or elsewhere preaching and teaching this ceremonial and civil law. They only went preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can read about some of that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. But certain false teachers would creep into the churches and they would disrupt the fellowship like in Acts 15.1 where it says certain Judaizers came in and said, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. There's all these issues coming in. And this plague was persistent. And uh, it, was, it was a big deal. Now, it was divisive. It was very divisive in the early church. So this eating of meat was connected to all that stuff. So now we're back to Romans 14.1. So, okay, number one. Paul says to this church, don't quarrel over opinions. Don't quarrel over opinions. There are, he says, there are weak people who come into the church... And we should welcome them into the church, but we should not welcome them to come in to make mountains out of molehills. In a church, we want to have peace in a church. But sometimes people come into a church, and they'll, and they'll make everything a big deal. Everything's a big deal. Every, every, everything is life or death. We have to shun those kind of things. Don't quarrel over opinions. Don't quarrel over whether or not women can wear blue jeans to church on Sunday morning. Right. When I was a kid, I, I, had, I had this article that I used to give to my friends, 15 Reasons Not to Use Screens in Church. <laughs> I might have changed my mind. <laughs> and that was a big deal, because if you've got a screen in your church, you're getting people looking up, instead of looking down at a hymnal or down at God's Word, looking down, you've got to get them looking down, not looking up, you know, all these kind of it's a big deal. In fact, I had a guy preach for me in Oklahoma. And we put the word our songs on screens in Oklahoma. And this is a guy is a very good friend of mine. He was preaching a sermon. And he started and he kind of got on having screens in church. And he said, I may be getting myself in trouble here. But nonetheless, <laughs> we shouldn't re- quarrel over opinions. Everybody's got them. Now, Paul calls this issue... Opinions. So this conflict, he's saying, is no longer something that's established. This is an opinion. People don't need to argue over opinions. We should dispute over the truth. And the truth of Paul's day was they had passed from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, and so now the ongoing application of the Old Covenant is just an opinion. And this is a well-traveled American proverb about opinions. You guys probably know it. Opinions are like armpits. Everybody has two, and they both what? Yeah, so it is a well-traveled American proverb. (laughs) Opinions can destroy fellowship. Opinions can just, and they destroy because people are often defensive, sensitive, or abusive when it comes to their precious opinions. Their opinions are so important to them. You guys remember, I hate to invoke this, but it'll harken back to Michael Peterson's time here. Remember in the Lord of the Rings that little wormy creature, Gollum, who loves the ring. And what's he willing to do to get the ring back? Anything. He loves the ring, it's his precious. And our opinions sometimes are just like that. Our opinions are what they are and I'll never change my opinion. We kind of we kind of bronze them and put them on the wall. That's my opinion. And if somebody says, that's not too good of an opinion, you know, we're ready to go to war over it. Opinions can destroy fellowship. Now, in verses 2 through 12, Paul says opinions call for judgments. And judgments alienate people. Paul says here in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Who are you and who am I to pass judgment on the opinions of other Christians about things Scripture doesn't say? We are the servants of God, and we owe an account to Him. We are supposed to be pleasing Him and not others. We're to leave the judgment of opinions to God. What you have here is an apostolic injunction, do not judge others over their opinions on stuff. Opinions on stuff. Now, does that mean that all judgments are bad? Does that mean we should never judge anything? That's not what it means. We have to make some judgments between truth and error. That's, that's what we're looking for, truth and error. If somebody's opinion is a damnable error or a critical error, what's a good way to illustrate that? So right now, people are still ice fishing, yes? And what's the official date to take your shanty off the ice? Is it like the 15th of March or something? You've got to get that off the ice by March 15th. So probably the ice is getting thicker or thinner now. Probably getting thinner. Now, I have heard that four inches of ice is safe to walk on, yes? And I have also heard that six inches of ice is okay for a four-wheeler or a snowmobile. And I have also heard that twelve inches of ice is what you need for a full-size pickup truck. My truck. See, he just he just he just said my truck was not full size. <laughs> How dare he judge my Toyota? <laughs> <laughs> so we have there's opinions about these things. You know now there'll be there'll be there'll be some local Sheboygan guy who he has been driving on eight inches of ice in his truck his whole life and he ain't never fallen through. And then so when he knows the ice is eight inches, he's out there doing donuts on the ice. You know, and everybody's like, don't do that, don't do that. You know, that could be a fatal error, right? If he goes through. I mean, it happens. There are some opinions that have to be said that is an error. So if you are here and your opinion is that you can get to heaven without putting your personal faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to say to you that opinion that you have is a fatal opinion. That's an error, that's dangerous. You know when your little kids, you guys have little kids, drop something on the floor, drop drop a couple of paper clips on the floor. You ever catch one of your kids trying to stick a fork or some other object into an outlet receptacle? Now the kids opinion is, this will be fun. Mom plugs stuff in here all the time. But you stop them from following their opinion because it's fatal. Some opinions are fatal. So we do have to make some judgments. Now, Matthew 18 gives us an outline for making some of these judgments. 1 Corinthians 6 says that the church, the local church, has the, the, the job of making decisions sometimes about these things. But the bigger idea here is that our attitude about things, about people's opinions, should not be judgmental. This is very hard because we are so judgy by nature. My brother one time drew a picture of a wheelbarrow upside down before a class, and he said, now tell me me about my wheelbarrow. Well, somebody said, well, it's upside down, can't use it. It's, it's, It's useless to us upside down. And they went through a lot of, and once somebody made a negative statement about it, my brother said the negatives just didn't stop. He said, is there anything positive about my wheelbarrow being upside down? And everybody's like, no. And he said, what if I turned it upside down? That way when it rains, it doesn't collect water. It It was a fascinating thing. Sometimes we have opinion. We're always looking for the negative in people. Paul talks about this as a thing called evil surmisings. You know, always imputing motive to people that we don't know. I know why he did that. I know why she did that. Sometimes we impute evil motives to people, we're judgmental. Now, just turn to Matthew 7. That way you can mark this in your Bible. That way you'll know where it's at. Everybody says this, but nobody knows where it is. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. If you are ultra-critical of people... They're going to judge you ultra-critically. You're, it's, it's a law of the universe, you might say. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's judge self before judging others. Judge self before judging others. This is hard to do, isn't it? It's very hard to do because your speck is on my last nerve. You're making me crazy over here with all these specks. You're driving me crazy. If you don't stop it, I'm going to beat you to death with the log in my eye. <laughs> so our attitude should not be judgment. We shouldn't impute motives. shouldn't be hypercritical of people. Now, to those persons, so Paul says, basically, he says in Romans 14, that eating meat offered to idols is not a big deal. And those who understand it's not a big deal, those are the mature people. But to those who are weak who believe eating meat offered to idols is a sin, those are weaker people they don't know. They don't understand Christian liberty. So you can say it like this. The people with the most rules that they yak about all the time, are the weaker. And the person who exercise Christian liberty more fully are the stronger because they understand how liberty works. Now, Paul has an interesting reading about that in 1 Corinthians. I don't have time to get to, but if you look it up yourself. Now, in, verses 14 to 13, in chapter 14, verses 13 to 23, Paul says, to those of you who are not weak, to those of you who understand Christian liberty... To those of you who know that eating meat offered to idols is not a big deal, what you need to focus on is not being a stumbling block to people or an obstacle to people around you. We need to think about how our own choices affect others. Listen to 14.13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. For I am persuaded in the Lord... That nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But by by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Think about how your liberty can affect others. Now, when I say that out loud, I really wish the Bible didn't say this. I wish it didn't say this because it means that I have to think about living a life that doesn't confuse you and that gets on my last nerve I want to be free to live I don't want to think about others I'm selfish man I don't want to think about it I I mean I'm thinking I'm thinking about myself and my wife and I want to think about yours Your stuff, I just want to think about me. I have to think about how my choices affect others? Come on. I feel deeply frustrated and convicted by this because I tend to not be very thoughtful about others, about how my life and your life influences others. Now, here are some examples from myself, okay? So when I'm giving you sermons... When I'm giving you sermons, sometimes I talk about movies, books, habits, vices, and things in a positive way, like it's not a big deal. Okay? So if I say to you that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, how many of you guys know what I mean by that? This is a big internet debate every year around Christmas. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? Now, most people say... You know, it's, just a, it's a funny ha-ha thing. It's, the, it's, the, it's a wonderful life of my generation, right? <laughs> it's a way to think about it. That's the kind of thing. That's, that's, Valerie's, Valerie's recoiling in horror over here. <laughs> so, how many, you, how many of you have seen the movie Die Hard? Okay. So, if you've seen... Oh yeah, which one? That implies something about that person. <laughs> so, so if you think about the film Die Hard, would you call it family friendly? <laughs> so we're all going down. <laughs> you know, are there things in there that are in- incompatible? That are there any? Non-Christian themes. Many. Is there anything that could? Uh, I mean, just think about it like that. So when I say I was watching Die Hard and Man, you know, and seeing Han, you know, you haven't said, you haven't celebrated Christmas and till you, you see Hans Gruber fall from the ninety-seventh floor of the Nakatomi Tower. That's how you know Christmas has begun. That's how you know. Well, see, in those statements, I'm endorsing there are people here who, who, who may say, you know, I don't think that, you should, that we should watch that kind of movie. And here are my reasons for it. Drug use in the movie. Sexual tones in the movie. There's killing. Profanity. Profanity. There's a lot of, somebody could say, as a sensitive conscience, and could say, you know, I think that that's not the kind of Christian movie a Christian should watch. And if they said that to me, if you said it to me after church, I will take hat in hand and just not talk about it anymore. Because that's kind of what you do with Christian liberty sometimes. Is we, is, I think the, big, the idea here is, you know, you don't put everything you do on Facebook. Newsflash. And as Christians, we have to be more thoughtful about, about Christian liberty because it affects other people. Now, so some people may say, when I was talking about that, that movie, what movie was it? What were we talking about? Die Hard. So when we talk about a movie like that, some people say, yeah, me too. Great film, love it. yippee ki yay you know. Love it. But then there'll be other people who will go, oh, that is a sin. And that's where conflicts can come in. So those of us, I'm not trying to say if you watch Die Hard, you're a mature Christian. It's just illustrative. We have to think about how our liberty affects Others. Others. And this could be an example of tripping, tri- tripping us up. Now, I don't do a good job of thinking through this. Even when I'm giving sermons, I don't, I don't think through that. And I need to do a better job of it, about how I talk about sins. And, and what things, things that, in, as far as personal liberty, that I, th- I think are okay, that you might not think that. I, I have to be more circumspect about that. Something I don't want to do Is is I don't want to offend or trip up people. I don't want to confuse people. This is what Paul wants people to think about. Think about how your life affects other people around you. Because not everybody everybody around you is a grown-up. Sometimes they're kids. So, let's say, Jose, can I borrow you for a second? Big Jose, come here, Jose. So, let's say me, me and Big Jose, we're at the school, we're volunteers, right? PE volunteers. And we're sitting down there, and we got a bunch of little kids. and say, All right, everybody, stand still, you know, keep your hands to yourself, et cetera, et cetera. We give all the rules. Don't talk while the teacher's talking. Me and Jose are standing over here. And I'm like, Fick. You know, we're just doing stuff to each other. Um, he's whispering to me, and we're just, we're cutting up. We're horsing around. And all the little kids, they look over, and they see us horsing up and cutting around. Horsing like, up hey, and stop cutting stop around. That. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Stop it. Well, why are they doing it? We just set for them a bad example. Thank you, Jose. Thanks for helping me. That, that. Jose. He'll be back next week. <laughs> That's what I have to think about, how we affect other people. This is Paul's bigger idea here. Now, don't let opinions destroy the church. We have to be cautious, be thoughtful about this, Right? So let's skip to the last page. Now, you may be saying you may I mean here's something like this, you may say, but these people are driving me nuts. I don't want to worry about these Christians who are concerned about these superfluous things. I don't I don't want to go through the exercise of doing that, like me. I don't want to have to think about how what I do affects others. I don't want to think about it. Why should I? Chapter 15, listen to what it is. Here you have the example of Christ. We who are strong have an obligation. That's a strong word, obligation. To bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ, our example... Did not please himself, but as, is written, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Christ is our example. Christ comes and lives in a way he puts up with the weakness of other people. And this is what you and I have to do too. It's the obligation of maturity, the example of Christ. We're going to need God's help to achieve it. Let's look at Paul's prayer here in verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify glorify, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is our example. Christ is our example. And that's how it is when you're a Christian person. Now let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would, you know, Lord, I, I, need, I, need to, I need to pay stricter attention to myself here. And I pray that you would help me, help my brothers and sisters. And Lord, where I have failed, where they have failed, help us to do better, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.